a magical place and birthplace of the drum set. I think we all have a place that exists in our mind in almost mythical proportions. A place that changes and molds us to become part of our identity. A place that not only affects our lives, but also has the power to change the world. A place where the gods live. In this episode, I'm going to re-explore the city of New Orleans. A place that not only changed me, but also the birthplace of my instrument of choice, the drum set. So sit back, take a load off, and come with me downriver to the Big Easy to explore. Hi, my name is Matt. Who dat? First, let me say that I'm no expert on New Orleans. I've only been a couple dozen times or so, and mostly briefly while I'm on tour. So I'm not gonna pretend to give a comprehensive history lesson. I'm more here to recall some wild times and shine a light on some of the magic that's come out of this place with some cool musical accompaniment. My first connection to New Orleans comes from my hometown and birthplace of St. Louis, Missouri. Both towns are on the Mississippi River, and both were initially inhabited by the French, who started from Canada and made their way downriver, spreading their names, customs, cuisine, and other influences along the way. In New Orleans, they have the French Quarter. In St. Louis, our French Quarter is called Soulard and Laclede's Landing, after the French fur trader Pierre Laclede. New Orleans may be many different things to many different people, but to me, the most powerful things to come out of it is the music and the instrument I make my living on, the drum set. The people of New Orleans and the area represent a perfect melting pot of ethnicities and their customs, starting with the French colonists, mixed with the Native American tribes in the area, and the eventual surge in population with the bringing in of sub-Saharan African slaves. But it's always been a busy port throughout its history, bringing Spanish, British, Filipino, etc as well as a destination for Haitian refugees. All these influences help create the Creole culture and Cajun population. But the part that interests me the most started in a tiny part of New Orleans called Congo Square.
back in the 1700s. The African slaves were not allowed to practice their native customs or their traditions, including their music, dance, dress, adornments, etc., except on one day a week, Sunday, and only in Congo Square. This place quickly became a hotbed of activity, mesmerizing onlookers from around the globe. The African slaves would play their melodies and rhythms on drums and percussions while singing and dancing, and eventually over time began incorporating European folk instruments, such as guitars, fiddles, harmonicas, banjos, etc. This is one of the birthplaces of American music, representing the diversity of this new nation and continuing a ripple effect of influence around the world to this day. One can't talk about New Orleans music without acknowledging the grand tradition of the marching funeral and the second line. Eventually, the African slave population was freed, and what soon followed was a wealth of local traditions and the introduction of brass instruments to the community. When a black member of the community died, the tr tradition was a solemn march to the cemetery accompanied by a brass band playing solemn music. This funeral procession would make its way slowly through town until they arrived at the cemetery. Once the body was in the ground or entombed, the vibe would change drastically. The music would cheer up, the tempo would pick up, and the spirit of celebration would explode as the once solemn band now became upbeat with joyful dancing and drumming, attracting anyone in the area to join in the revelry. The deceased family and musicians recalled the first line, and all the rest of the partiers and dancers were called the second line. Second line rhythms are still a common musical term to this day, and I play them all the time. It's a very specific feel of syncopated rhythms that originated in this area and would later become the seeds of jazz music and later funk and soul music in New Orleans. After it came off the street and was brought indoors to entertain in the whorehouses, clubs, and vaudeville theaters. But before that could happen, a significant adjustment had to be made in order to make a large band fit in a small space. In ensembles like the Second Line Marching Band, the rhythms required multiple drummers, one playing the snare drum, one playing the cymbals, another playing percussion such as tambourines, cowbells, etc. And finally, 
one playing the bass drum with mallets. But a new invention was about to change all that forever. In 1900, an invention arrived of a pedal where one can play the bass drum with their foot. By 1909, William F. Ludwig of the Ludwig Drum Company began mass producing a workable version that any drummer could acquire and use. Now a drummer could sit behind the bass drum and play it with his foot on the pedal, hence the term kick drum. He could also play the snare drum with sticks and add Chinese tom-toms, Turkish cymbals, wood blocks, and whatever else the music required. This collection of percussion instruments was often called a drum trap set, which was short for drum contraption. The drummer was now free to leave the parade environment and go indoors to accompany vaudeville acts, comedians, that's where the rim shot comes from, and also to accompany and inspire a variety of female dancers and strippers in places like clubs, theaters, and brothels, giving birth to the beginnings of jazz music. The word jazz was originally spelled J-A-S-S, but pronounced jazz, after the jasmine perfume worn by the prostitutes and strippers in the brothels. I'm not saying New Orleans was the first place a drum set appeared, but I am saying that that is where it really took hold and became part of a new kind of music that quickly spread to other areas in the US and Europe. Jazz music, eventually mixed with blues, gospel, folk, country, bluegrass, to create what we now call rock and roll. And the world would never be the same. One of the drum set's first pioneers was the New Orleans drummer, Warren Baby Dodds, or Baby Dodds for short. Baby was the premier drummer for some of the top acts in the area, such as Bunk Johnson, Fate Marable, King Oliver, and Jelly Roll Morton where he met and played alongside a teenage Louis Armstrong, who he would later work with for years in Louis' Hot Five and Hot Seven bands. I had read about Baby Dodds when I was a young drummer, and I found out that he made some drum solo recordings. At the time, I couldn't track them down until I wrote to the National Archives in the Library of Congress. They couldn't have been nicer and sent me copies of these primitive recordings. This is Baby doing his thing. At the time, this style of jazz music was called Dixieland and burlesque, usually accompanying an act of some sort as the musical support, but would eventually rise to being the main attraction itself. These small ensembles' music 
began an influence that grew into larger groups, becoming the big band era of jazz in places like Harlem, playing in large dance halls to larger crowds of dancers. This style of music could be jovial, melancholy, as well as inspirational. A perfect style of music to showcase a new bevy of talented singers and acts all led by the band leader that lifted America and Europe's spirits during World War II. But after the war, the style of jazz changed and became looser, more experimental, and more intimate, giving birth to smaller groups in smaller venues playing bebop. The drum set really became refined during this era, shedding the gimmicky collection of noisemakers and paring it down to a smaller four-piece drum set that could easily be set up in a small club stage. And the drummer's role also became less gimmicky and more of an accompaniment to longer improvisational soloing from the other instruments interacting with them in real time. The roles of the drummer became less orchestral and more conversational. This newly compact, efficient version of the drum set was also being used in other styles of music than jazz, appearing live and in recordings by blues, country, and even in churches playing gospel music. And again, begat what would soon be recognized as rock and roll and R&B. Which brings me back to New Orleans. During this time, a sound was coming out of New Orleans called New Orleans funk or soul. And this is the music that really inspired me and made me want to be a drummer. Acts like Professor Longhair, Aaron Neville, and The Meters became a siren's call to me, pulling me in closer. The Meters were the group that really spoke to me. It consisted of Art Neville on keys, later of the Neville brothers, Leo Nocentelli on guitar, George Porter on electric bass, and Zigaboo Modaliste on drums. Zigaboo's playing hypnotized me when I first heard it. And years later, I would eventually meet him when we were both playing a music festival in Norway. The night he performed, I had just finished my set and ran over to catch the master at work. I was able to walk up to the back of the stage and sit about seven feet behind him on a road case and watch his entire performance. What I learned by watching him was that there was no great secret or mystery to his drumming, but rather it was the tone he got and the feel he had because of the attitude and the history his playing possessed. It just had a sound and vibe that none of the other acts had. 
It was the sound of New Orleans. A sound that evoked those hot, humid nights on those sometimes dangerous streets. Streets filled with the sound of laughter and dancing, surrounded by the aroma of some of the best food on earth. I learned by watching him that there was nothing he played that I couldn't play. But I didn't sound like him. My favorite drummers aren't the most technically proficient, but rather the ones whose attitude and personality comes out in their sound. And Zigaboo is a perfect example of that. After the show, I got to meet him and ask him to sign a drumstick he broke during his performance and tossed at my feet. He couldn't have been nicer to me as we thanked each other. And to this day, it's the only autograph I've ever asked for. The first time I went to New Orleans, I was on tour with my first band from St. Louis, The Unconscious. As I said earlier, St. Louis was just upstream a few hundred miles up the Mississippi River. We used to tour in our tour bus made from a giant old school bus we bought and painted flat black. We ripped out all the seats and built bunk beds with tables, benches, and two large couches. The gear would be stored in a separate compartment we built in the back. It was a seriously unsafe mode of travel, but it did the job of getting us to the next city in a rolling party on wheels. It had no bathroom, but we would just walk down the front stairs of the bus, open the door, hold onto the handrail, and pee out the door while we barreled down the highway. Our favorite route was what we referred to as the Mud Belt Tour, where we would play venues in cities up and down the muddy Mississippi River. From Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, to La Crosse, Wisconsin, down to St. Louis, Missouri, then Memphis, Tennessee, and eventually ending up in New Orleans, Louisiana. The first time I did one of these tours, we arrived at night. New Orleans hosted the Super Bowl that day, and the game had just ended, sending crowds of partiers out in the streets to Bon Ton Roulet, which means, let the good times roll. We arrived at the legendary New Orleans venue Tipitina's, where we were booked to play the following night, to be broadcast live on the radio by the Tulane University radio station. But on this particular evening, the Neville brothers were playing. The Neville brothers and extended family and friends were New Orleans musical royalty that included Art Neville on the keys from the meters. We walked in and the first thing I saw in the entrance was a bronze bust of Professor Longhair, arguably the father of New Orleans funk and soul. As I made my way through the sweaty packed crowd to the front of the stage, I looked up and there they were in mid-song, playing the Professor Longhair classic, Big Chief, about the Mardi Gras chiefs that would dress as Native American chiefs to take the role of master of ceremonies and lead the parades and Mardi Gras festivities. But there I was, 
and there they were. It felt like arriving at Mount Olympus in ancient Greece and looking up at the Greek gods. It was a magical moment I will never forget. They played long and hard deep into the night, effortlessly performing the deepest funky grooves I'd ever heard in person. This was the real deal. What they were doing was what I aspired to do. But being a young, punk rock, heavy metal white kid from the suburbs meant that I did it twice as fast and loud and half as soulful. But I took it all in and absorbed every note. After the show, we hung out and became friends with one of their longtime crew members who suggested we all go out to eat. This brings me to another important part of this episode. The food of New Orleans. This would be my first time experiencing the real deal. Now, I'm my mother's son, and my 82-year-old mother has traveled all over the world and still does. And when she goes to a new place, her greatest interest is the food. And more importantly, the common local street food of the people. I have also been fortunate enough to have traveled the world playing shows, largely due to what this episode is mostly about, the drum set. But anytime I tell my mother about my travels, her first questions are, what did you eat? Did you enjoy the food? So when the Neville Brothers old-time New Orleans born and raised crew member invited us out to eat the best late night meal in New Orleans and listen to his stories, we jumped at the chance. And I ordered what would become one of my favorite meals of all time, red beans and rice with a side of fresh cornbread. Red beans and rice was traditionally made on Mondays because that was wash day and you could use the leftover ham bone from Sunday dinner to slow cook with the beans and other ingredients while you do the week's wash. I often describe New Orleans as the most European-like place in America because it has its own customs, music, language, laws, and of course, cuisine that are unlike any other place in the U.S. Dishes like gumbo, crawfish étouffée, jambalaya, mufaleta, po'boys, beignets, and of course, red beans and rice. The food influences the music, and the music influences the food. I can't think of another place in the world that references the local food in the lyrics as much as New Orleans. They literally write songs about it because it's so important. I love how New Orleans is a place where the music, the food, the traditions, and the history are so intertwined that they can't be separated. They are all ingredients in the gumbo pot that is the New Orleans experience. Another important part of the New Orleans experience is its long-standing history of its relationship with the supernatural. Because it is a place that has been inhabited and settled by so many different cultures, all of which 
have brought their own religious and mystical practices and traditions, which blended here to create its own hybrid religion called voodoo. The origins of New Orleans voodoo come from the West Africans that were brought here as slaves with their own African religious beliefs and practices, mixed with the Roman Catholic form of Christianity and Haitian voodoo. It then developed its own traditions and practices that involved altars and charms to worship deities and spirits of the dead. It has been labeled by many to be a form of witchcraft that has developed many rituals. Just like many ancient spiritual ceremonies, music is the gateway to other spiritual realms. And like many other ancient spiritual ceremonies music, Rhythm is the foundation of it all. It is the portal to connect and communicate with the beyond. It's almost like the drum or other percussion instruments like rattles, tambourines, bells, etc. are vehicles to transport the practitioners to a spiritual plane that they would otherwise be unable to visit. In voodoo, there are four phases to a ritual all identifiable by the song being sung and performed. Preparation, invocation, possession, and farewell. The music is used to travel to and open the gate between the deities and the human world and invite the spirits to possess someone. The music, combined with offerings to the spirits, invite them to enter the body of the practitioner through which they can heal and offer blessings. I can't help but notice a strong connection with these spiritual voodoo practices and the eventual evolution of what we now call rock and roll. And also, to take note of the power that music has to connect with each other and to possibly open the doors to connect with the unknown. In my instrument, the drum set, has a direct link to this history and ritual. There is no other instrument that draws on so many cultures and traditions. Every ancient culture has its own forms of drums and percussion. It's been around since primitive man and holds secrets and powers like no other instrument. The drum set is a collection of musical instruments that are connected with historical artifacts, and it requires all four limbs to perform and operate it. And when done correctly, with respect, it still holds the power to not only accompany, support, and elevate words and melodies, but also tap into other worlds and the unknown. to awaken and connect with spirits and sources of ancient power. I myself don't hold any specific spiritual beliefs that can easily be defined, but I do believe in unseen forces. I've experienced them firsthand. And when I sit behind my instrument and begin to play with a pure intent, that is what I'm tapping into. I'm putting out a call and inviting a connection with forces that have been connected with since the dawn of man. 
And that's not too shabby of a place to be. Thanks for listening. Bye. My name is Matt.